Mike? How you doing? Hey, Kevin. Pretty good. We're getting used to doing the greetings. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you want to talk getting about today? Getting better at something, huh? <laughs> uh-huh. So what do you want to talk about today? Well, you know, um, that musicians, I think, and probably not just musicians, but people who are tend to be perfectionists. They want to do everything ex- exactly perfect. And if it's not perfect, then you have to start all over and do it again, right? Right, right. But that's really hard with music, especially if you're playing, you know, how you feel. Again, if we're talking about jazz, you're improvising, you're you're coming up with ideas as you play and executing those. Uh, so it would be hard to finish something, I think, and go back and say, that's perfect. Uh, I see where you're going. Yeah, you, you know, when I have a, a new student coming to me who wants to study improvisation, learn how to improvise at, on their instrument, what I, I tell them, that, especially for adult learners, one of the first skills that they have to have, and I call it a skill, like a craft, is to not judge themselves. And I think most people experience the other side of this is like they, they're nervous, they don't like what they play, they think if I just knew more, if I just practiced harder, then I won't dislike what I'm playing. But my experience of doing this for so long as a professional and all the great people I've mentored, most people are very uncomfortable hearing their, their own music and not liking it. I, you know, I compare it to what the experience of what it's like when you hear your, your voice on a recording. Almost everyone's like, oh, you know. Yeah. I think almost everyone, you know. <laughs> right. But... You know that's a skill in itself, and it's something we all we all struggle with. I think so. It, it's a pretty common practice in the recording studio back in the day. It's changing now since so much of recording now is kind of assembled. You know, you lay down the the drum machine, the drum part, and lay on another label. But when people were recording right there in the moment, it was kind of understood that you would do a couple of takes, but you didn't want to listen to them right away because you would remember any mistake you made and it would be highlighted when you listen to it. So it was important to wait at least a few days, maybe a few weeks, and then listen to it, especially without knowing the number of the takes, so that you could have a, a more honest listening to it. You know, have you ever have you experienced that kind of thing in recording? Well, you know, again, I've done most of what I have done over the years is just play out. I haven't spent a lot of time in the studio. But yes, the little bit that I've done is that I would be so nervous about making a mistake. Uh, and, and how do you play th- and sing through a whole tune w- without something not being perfect? Well, of course, there's the other side of that story where you've got people who just go ahead and play and figure that the, uh, the pro- producer the, or the, uh, the engineer is going to fix it all. You know, if you're auto-tune off, it. Auto-tune it. <laughs> but if you're thinking about not making mistakes, you're not probably not playing a good tune. Well, one of my um, favorite musicians who just happened, I just happened to meet him when he was in high school, actually played his audition for Berkeley. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing musician named Bob Reynolds. Um, and his, I did it, one of his first recordings with him, but I remember for one of his albums, he just kept practicing, trying to get ready for it, and it was going to be like, it's going to take five years for him to make this one album, and he finally decided, you know what, I, 
I just have to do it. And he came up with the perfect title. He calls the record, Can't Wait for Perfect. And it's it's a real thing. You know, the, my very first recording under my own name, I, I was sponsored by the American Pianist Association. And they paid for the whole thing. We had a huge budget for, for 1988, I think it was, 89. Um, maybe it was, oh, no, it was a long time ago. But I remember us going up to Indianapolis and we had like four days of recording time. They, they picked out Steinway for me and everything. I mean, I got to pick out Steinway mm -hmm. for the whole thing. They had Tuner there twice a day. And we recorded and recorded and recorded and we weren't happy with anything. I think some of the songs we did 20 takes. <laughs> and we went overtime. We were supposed to play in Orlando. We drove there in a van. We were supposed to play in Orlando the next morning. And so we like record to like 10 p.m. And we just had to get in the van and drive home. And we were all so like downtrodden and like, oh, we are terrible. We can't do this. We felt so, all three of us, me, uh, Ricky Ravello, Pete Chemilewski, um, and we had cassette tapes of, you know, they'd given us raw mixes of stuff, and none of us wanted to listen to it. But after like 10 hours of driving into the middle of the night, we haven't slept, we finally put on one, and it was way better than we remembered. To produce the record, I um, made cassette tape of the best candidates we thought for it, and then gave it to our friends and had them pick out the tracks. And, um, every track on the record's the first take, which means those other 19 takes were wasted. You, you, you know, it was a learning lesson. Of course, it was my first. I think a lot of people have had that experience with their first recording. Yeah. But, you know, the same thing happens when you walk on stage um, in front of a bunch of audience. I, I have an easier time playing for 20,000 strangers than if um, my three sisters were singing in the front row looking at me <laughs> right. or someone I know. Right. It's just easier when you're not you keep don't have to think about it. Yeah, and I and I think so too that that when you keep redoing something over and over it gets stale. Oh, well that's true. You know, when I was touring with the great Renee Marie, one of her ways of dealing with this was was truly to embrace the risk. I've 10 years, I can't count the number of gigs. Uh, she never repeated a set. We repeated songs, mm -hmm. but she never wanted it to be like a shtick where you did it the same way every time. And when you do that, it's, it, the audience is, it, you could have the a set perfected and one night it's great and the next night it's not. It's what people are responding to is less the perfect order of songs, but the way you play it. And it's really hard to pretend some things. You know, I mean, if you have a big number one hit or something, then I guess that's a different experience. You can just do it. But for jazz world in particular, you know, we're we're playing hopefully very differently every single time. And I learned a lot from her, just her approach to this. She would even sometimes, wouldn't even want to pick the songs. And she'd ask the three of us, the rhythm section, you guys just pick the songs and we'll just do it. And she she would just go with it. Mm-hmm. Cool. I remember one time, I have a recording of this. We were playing the Jazz Theater in New York on Valentine's week. And her whole life, she she, um, she avoided the song at last because it's like a cliche song that people do. So she had never really, she never learned it. But everyone's there is asking for at last. So she finally said, okay, I'll do it if someone gives me the lyrics. 
and someone brought it up on their phone. This person walked up and brought the cell phone up for her. Um, it's a Japanese lady who handed it to her. And um, Renee's singing it. It's great. Like, she knew the song out goes. She just didn't remember every word. And, like, halfway through it, the phone timed out, you know, went to screensaver. And she can't bring it back up. <laughs> and she shows the audience. She's still singing. It's got Japanese letters on it. And she just kept going and made up the rest of the words. And it might be the best version of At Last <laughs> any of us had heard. It was great because of, of the fearlessness of it and the uh -huh. not judging about it, you know. Um, that was really something something to experience there, you know. And that's one of the best things about performing is when you're able to do it without being self-aware and self-critical. It's good. Yeah, and there there are some tried and true tactics for dealing with mistakes, too. Like uh, one of the things that, that I, I learned very early, and it was half tongue-in-cheek taught, but if you play something wrong play it again then it sounds like you meant to play so, it so you way. play something wrong <laughs> play it again yeah what was that so so that it sounds like you meant to play it that way if you play something wrong <laughs> say it again <laughs> yeah i think it works <laughs> I well was, you had you had an experience that you told me about once uh when you recorded with ben tucker right <laughs> yeah ben tucker. when we're talking about first takes and well, you know, Ben, um, amazing bass player, a mentor to me, he, um, you know, he, he, he was the first African, he, he moved to Savannah to be the first African-American to own a radio station in the early 70s. He wanted that to be his con contribution to, the, to, you know, the continuation of the civil rights movement, I think is how he said it. Um, he got a lot of money from a couple of hit songs he had written, and he, one of the guys who come up with Schoolhouse Rock, him and Bill Duro, the jazz singer. Um, ben was later in life. I had moved to Atlanta. I wasn't playing with as much, but um, he asked me to produce um, an album. It ended up being his last album for him. And uh, we planned the whole thing. I figured the musicians he wanted. He gave me a song list. Uh, it's trumpet and saxophone. I wrote arrangements for the whole thing. The night before the recording, 10 o'clock, Ben calls me and says, Yeah, Kevin, hey, partner. He called everyone partner, N A R. <laughs> he um, he said, I, I, I want to do different songs. Here's the songs I want to do. <laughs> I mean, he's Ben Tucker, so I'm like, I'm like, yes, sir, okay. Mm -hmm. So I stayed up, wrote some new arrangements, and then we, we get to the studio in the next morning, and we walk in, and one of the songs is a pretty hard song. It's called Background Music by Lenny Tristano. Ben used to play it with the saxophone player he lived with named Warren Marsh. And... Um, we set up everything and we ran through it once and then marcus primp on mace hibbard the two horn players were like okay let's do one and ben's like no that was it next song <laughs> and we're all like whoa 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 we didn't know we were recording he says he says tape doesn't lie one more song and we did one take of every song whatever <laughs> we might have done two because like a problem with a microphone or something but basically we did that, that we were gonna i thought we we're gonna take three or four days to do it we did the whole thing in about three hours you know bam there it is and it's a good record and he's right <laughs> it's funny mm -hmm. but he had he had obviously been through this i mean he's on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of records when i recorded with um Marcus Brent for Blue Note. We're in the studio in New York. It's a famous studio. It's got four floors. And 
um, in the elevator, they would list who was recording the day on which floor. And when we showed up for our first of four days of recording, on the second floor was Mary McPartland and Gene Harris, the two great jazz pianists. They're both legends. And they're doing a duo record on the second floor studio. We're on the fourth floor. So we went up and we did like three and a half hours and decided to go for lunch. And I said, I'll catch up with you guys. I wanted to run down. I've never met Gene Harris. I've met Mary McPartland. And I ran down there to the studio and I get off the elevator and I look in through the glass window and there's a bunch of guys that are wrapping up chords and stuff. And I walk in and say, hey, it's, it's uh, Mary McPartland or Gene Harris here. I said, oh, no, they've left. They left for lunch. I said, well, where are they coming back? Oh, so no, they're done. I'm like, how many days have they been here recording? I said, oh, just today. Yeah, they did it in about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so I got close to being Gene Harris. But, you know, they just sat down and played yeah. for an hour. And, you know, that's maturity and experience, I think. Yeah, and I think that's that's a big part of this whole issue is that um, it, it, it takes some familiarity, getting familiar with what you're doing, especially being in a studio. Yeah, but, yeah, but let's distinguish. It's not getting familiar with like how to be in a studio or getting familiar with the material that you're playing. Right. It's getting familiar with not listening to the inner committee of self-doubt, <laughs> right. you know, yep. telling you an imposter, whatever. Everyone has that to some degree. It's funny, Mike, like, I prefer live records over studio records. They always seem to be better, mm -hmm. especially when they don't know uh, that's recording. You know, there's this famous Miles Davis record, um, two of them, Four and More and My Funny Valentine. They're now issued as a, as a group as the 1964 concert. It's, it's Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter, Tony Williams, George Coleman, Miles Davis. And um, right before they, supposedly, right before they walked on stage, Miles told them, oh, yeah, this is a charity. Y'all aren't being paid. And they were pretty pissed. <laughs> so they went on there and played their asses off, like angry about, about this stuff. Supposedly that wasn't true. And he, he didn't tell them they were recording it. And he did that to, like, inspire them. And they're, they're two legendary records. <laughs> you know, I'm sure Herbie says that story way better. Well, I'm, I guess the point is, is that if, you, if you're in there recording or if you're on stage, whatever, just doing, you know, maybe being recorded live, whatever, is you have to have your confidence and you have to be thinking about your music, what you're playing uh, or singing as opposed to worrying about making mistake or worrying about not being perfect. And if you have that freedom about what you're doing, you're going to play this song better than, than if you're concerned about perfection. You know, yeah, you, you know the sublime place is where you're truly not thinking about anything at all. Just like you're on a good date, a first date that's going great and you're talking and talking and you cover every random topic instead of going through a, a set of audition questions, you know, that that's a feeling that you can get on stage and it's made easier when there's an audience there, not because you need applause, but because there's this moment of, of selflessness where you give yourself up to the music. I know this sounds very philosophical, but it really is. You know, we, we have some actually strange empirical 
um, facts about this now. I get someone sends me this medical abstract or an article about it all the time now. I think it's like 12 years old, maybe 15. But John Hopkins Research um, Hospital, um, they they had built a new type of MRI machine design for only the brain. At the time they made it, it would do a live five-minute 3D scan of the brain and all its activity, you know, so they didn't like to have to wait till someone had an aneurysm and cut in there and then find out what's happening. And it was controversial because it was expensive and they didn't think it was going to uncover anything new than the regular MRI machines. But it just so happens that the first breakthrough on this thing involves music. It, that kind of proved that it was worth the money they spent on it. And not just music, um, improvisation. You know, they do what they're going to study. Like, what happens when you sleep? What happens when you read a book? You know, what happens when you have an orgasm? All these kinds of things. They're, you know, they're, they're scientists. Mm -hmm. So the, the device was like a CAT scan where you lay down and your head goes back into this round tube. So you couldn't play like a violin or a trumpet or guitar in there. So they brought out a keyboard that would sit on the person's lap and they stick their fingers out of there. And they had a bunch of classical people play, but they couldn't improvise. So when they had a guy come in who could improvise, that's when they made the first, this big discovery. And there's a portion of the frontal lobe that they knew what it did. I know this is lengthy. I'm trying to make it short, but they knew what it did because people who had had an, it had an aneurysm, it was damaged, but survived, or you know, car accident, some brain damage. They survived. They did. If that was damaged, no longer working, the person would be normal, except they wouldn't have the ability to assess risk or self-judge. So people who had this could like walk into the middle of traffic or know that a stove was hot but still touch it and would be disheveled and mud on their face and not care. Um, serious enough that they had to have someone around them to mm -hmm. keep them safe. Um, what they didn't know was that this portion of the brain could be turned on and off. And when the person was improvising, that part of the brain went completely dark. And then when he's done, it came back on. First time I read this, I knew what this was. And other people, too, when they talk about when their marathon runner gets to the zone or a baseball pitcher yeah. is there, he's not thinking. It's this, it's this, this act of not judging yourself at all and just letting it happen. It's very right. zen. And I, I think, you know, anyone can benefit from that in music or sport or whatever. This, this whole thing of learning not to be such a narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. Yeah. <laughs>